This is Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. Production support for Appalachian Vibes is made possible by Fretmill Music Company and Lawrence C. Musgrove Associates. This week on Appalachian Vibes, we discover what really happened to the infamous Franklin County Bondurant Boys with the Appalachian folk artist Colby Helms. We dive into the songwriting relationship and brotherly love with the original members of Charlottesville, Virginia's funky rock and roll dance party Disco Risque, and we hear the story called Redbud by Appalachian writer A. Jordan. My first guest is Colby Helms of Warner Helms Edition. My name is Colby Helms. Uh, I play, I would call it uh, traditional and contemporary Appalachian music, I guess, and uh, Really, country music is what it is, real country music. What is fake country music? Basically, fake country music is country music that is, uh, it doesn't come from the heart. It comes from Nashville, and it comes out of a, you know, a, a studio where about 16 songwriters sit down and, and pick out melodies and pick out words and see if they can fit them together like a puzzle piece and see which one will make them the most money. It's literally like the lottery. They literally put them together in several combinations, and eventually one of them will be a hit. Um, so that's kind of interesting how they do. I mean, it's. I mean, I guess you have to have talent to do it, but it's not the same as, you know, Jimmy Rogers, you know, belting out a yodel or something. This is a song I wrote back uh back last September. It was the first day of dove season, and me and my buddy were supposed to go dove hunting, and uh, he went with somebody else, and they killed a. Uh, their limit on birds and uh i went by myself and uh i killed zero <laughs> so uh, in the in the field uh, i was sitting there it's blistering hot if you can imagine this it's in callaway virginia it's blistering hot the sun's belting down and i'm pissed off because my buddy went with somebody else i know they're killing doves in the place i was at there was none there and so i figured you know what better thing to do than sit down and write a song about it so I wrote a song about it, and this is called, uh, it's called The Dove Song. Well, way down southwest Virginia, there's a few good old boys that keep that tradition. Six-pack and a 12-gauge, we see them sitting, waiting on doves to fly by. Well, it's hotter than hell, no place to sit down. Starts at noon and there's no doves around. And most boys go out and they act like clowns. But Lord, I was persistent. And my daddy would take me when I was a boy. And I held my ears because I hated the noise. I'd go get his doves, sometimes they weren't dead. And I'd cry to myself when he'd wring their neck. My daddy is gone I hunt these old cornfields All by my home His old Remington I hold in my hand To prove to myself That I am a man told me way out in the pasture said the migratory birds lord they fly so much faster the more local doves just sit and 
get fatter waiting on that power line and it reminds me of how some folks go through life just sitting and waiting on love to pass by and other boys go out and they try to fly but they always get shot down And all of my buddies, Lord, I was scorning Knowing I'd go out that very next morning And do the same thing again Well, way down in southwest Virginia There's a good old boy that needs some more ammunition My father was a really uh, unique man His name was Steve Helms And uh, he was from Franklin County, Virginia And he was a handyman his whole life. Well, actually, he was a civil engineer at first, and then he, you know, decided to become a handyman. And, and uh, he, you know, worked every day that he was alive, pretty much, providing for me and my mom. And, you know, he built the house that we live in. And he was a really great guy. Well, when I was about 12 years old, he was diagnosed with uh, bone cancer, uh, you know, just random. And, uh, you know, it eventually about a year went by. And after that, he, he had passed away about in about a year. And uh, he was a really big uh, influence on me because he was just a really great man. Uh, he loved old time music and he he taught me a lot about life and doing your best and all that. So I kind of really. A lot of my songs are influenced by him. Uh, a lot of things I do in general are influenced by him. So that song uh, definitely has a little bit of truth in it when I'm talking about his old Remington, I hold in my hands. That's real, literally his shotgun. Uh, me and him used to go dove hunt, like I said. Uh, now I'm 18 now. I gotta, I gotta do things on my own now. And uh, you know, when my dad passed when I was 12, I kind of had to step up to the plate pretty quick because you know it's just me and my mother. And my mother had never lived by herself in her whole life. You know, she's always lived with her parents. And uh, then she moved in with my dad. And uh, you know, I've tried to be the best son that I can to her. And you know, I guess that's really songwriting material right there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my dad was a big inspiration and still is, really. So how old were you when you started playing guitar? I was actually 12. I, actually, after my dad passed away is really when I took it up because I was pretty upset, obviously, and I wanted a hobby that I could just do all the time. So I got a guitar and I started taking, you know, guitar lessons and I took guitar lessons for, you know, a little while until I realized, well, shoot, you know, I've been singing all my life. I've been singing in the church since I was, you know, before I could walk, basically. And uh, I realized, well, shoot, I can do this on my own. I don't need to be taking lessons. I can, you know, teach myself. So I quit taking lessons because it was my mom could barely afford it. And I just started uh, listening to recordings and trying to copy it until I, you know, got good enough to where I knew what was going on. <laughs> and that's kind of kind of how it should be done, honestly. You know, a lot of people talk about uh, tabs and, and reading music, and a lot of people talk about taking lessons and learning this, but if you want to do it, you're going to have to do it yourself is what I've learned. You know, that's like a, another old saying my dad used to say, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. This is a song that I, you know, kind of wrote when I, I broke up with my ex-girlfriend, 
It's called uh, Smoking Flames, and uh, hope y'all enjoy it. Hearts like glass is something we all have to do But in the end it comes back to bite Cause glass, it ain't sharp Until you bust it up And after that it's sharper than a knife My buddy, he once told me That I was a fool For leaving something that I know so well And though I didn't know it My conscience wouldn't show it I cast myself into living hell And you said I'd be flying And you'd be down there crying And I'd be on top of the world never coming down But it only took a while before you got back your smile Meanwhile my plane has crashed and hit the ground Well I shouldn't have played games When I mess with smoke and flames Even though we get burned in the end Well I should have worn gloves When I gave up on your love Cause I got burned and there's nothing left to mend left to mend Well I sang in the church just to do the good Lord's work but my hair was too long for that congregation but that's just Baptist for you Shake your hand and then ignore you Will I cut my hair? Can I go to heaven now? Well, chances they will come And chances they will go But the chances I should take Well, only the good Lord knows My garden's dug and planted But nothing seems to grow Cause the sun don't shine down in this holler Well I shouldn't have played games When I mess with smoke and flames Even though we get burned in the end Well I should have worn gloves When I gave up on your love Well I got burned and there's nothing left to men Left to men only tell you how much that I love you you'd probably tell me to get down and pray but when my daddy was dying and I ran in the woods crying well the Lord didn't have too much to say well 
I shouldn't have played games When I mess with smoke and flames Even though we get burned in the end Well, I should have worn gloves When I gave up on your love Well, I got burned and there's nothing left to mend Left to mend Played games when I mess with smoke and flames, even though we get burned in the end. And I should have worn gloves when I gave up on your love, cause I got burned and there's nothing left to mend. Yeah, I got burned and there's nothing left to mend. Not everything works out in the end is kind of the kind of the theme of that song. Tell me about where you're from. The county where I'm from, it's Franklin County, Virginia. It's known as the moonshine capital of the world. And, uh, you know, several years back, they made a movie about it called Lawless. And it's supposed to tell the story of these three Bonner boys uh, who are from Snow Creek, which is on the southeast part of the county, down in tobacco country. Um, and they made liquor. And, you know, eventually... The whole conspiracy happened, and they ended up getting shot. Um, but the movie Lawless is completely inaccurate, completely inaccurate. And I was tired of people, when I would go out of town and I would tell them where I'm from, they'd say, oh, that's where the movie Lawless is about. That's so cool. And I have to explain them that the, that movie is, you know, it's Hollywood. They're going to make it completely different than it actually was. Uh, I would explain what actually happened, but... The song, you know, it, it pretty much explains it. Basically, these three boys were uh, making liquor, and the Commonwealth Attorney of Franklin County, you know, back then, you know, a lot of things were crooked. Uh, there wasn't as much paperwork, and, you know, there wasn't online and stuff like that. You couldn't be tracked as easily. So people could get away with a lot more crooked stuff than they can now, or at least they can get away with it in a different way. <laughs> well, this man would charge these uh, moonshiners all around the county to let them go forth and sell and export and import without having any trouble by the police. Um, and they had always done that. It was just kind of like a, you know, I don't rat you out, you don't rat me out thing. Uh, they had always done it for free. Well, eventually in the 1920s, uh, this Commonwealth attorney, he said, well, I'm going to start charging y'all to run liquor and charging y'all to import and export. Well, most everybody was like, oh, we don't want to mess with the law, so we're just going to go ahead and you know, pay the monthly fine or whatever. We can just go about our business. Well, the Bonner boys, they were one of the biggest uh, exporters of liquor in the county. And basically, they told him, uh, go screw yourself, man. We've been doing it like this for years. We're not going to change the way we did it. Well, <clears throat> he said, well, you know, we're, we'll bust you then. Well, then this is how the Bonner boys, this is how things got sticky. This is how the whole moonshine conspiracy thing happened. Things get sticky when he says, well, okay, well, we'll just go to the FBI and, you know, expose you for, I don't know what you call it, racketeering or whatever when you, you know, conspiracy or, or whatever. And so basically they were like, oh, well, af everything after that is hearsay, but I'll tell you the hearsay. Hearsay, basically, they wanted to make it look like the Bonnet boys were shooting at police so they could basically gun them down and pff, problem dealt with. 
The only problem was they didn't, the guy, the deputy that was on duty, didn't kill him when they shot him. Uh, the, the Bonner boys were shot at Maggotty Creek in Boone's Mill, not far from where I live, just probably four miles. Uh, they shot him down in the road. They had a roadblock, and they stopped, and they had liquor on their, you know, they knew that they were that caravan was coming. They shot him, and, but they survived the shooting. And after that, a bunch of people went to jail, but the Commonwealth attorney didn't go to jail. But a lot of people went to jail. A lot of people got fined. It was pretty crooked. Even the court was crooked, I think. And that's why, obviously, he didn't go to jail. If he did go to jail, it wasn't for long. It was like, you know, he got a slap on the wrist. But this is a song I wrote about it, kind of clearing things up. It's called Hicks Holy Water. Well, down in Snow Creek on Turkey Cock Mountain, three brothers made a whiskey each day. It sure beat hauling knee deep in tobacco, hoeing that corn and chopping that hay. Whiskey was flowing like a hick's holy water from a clear mountain stream. They'd haul it at night and block out the smoke, more liquor than you've ever seen. Well, Carter Lee was a Rocky Mount man. His pockets, they were lined with cash. He wanted the dough from the moonshiners to let their convoys roll past. And up to Roanoke, where them rich folks do coke, they'd ship out that old moonshine to New York City, where they pay a pretty penny for liquor that makes them feel fine. The men were dying and the church was lying and the children were crying cause their daddies were dead and the people were praying and the congregation saying Well, don't let that liquor, boys, go to your head sheriff came round to the south side of town to talk them boys into paying but the bonderin boys they spit in the dirt cause they knew just what they were saying and old deputy beckett with death in his eyes says i'll give you one more chance if you don't pay on the next go round you've danced your last dance and the men were dying and the church was lying the women were crying because their husbands were dead and the people were praying but the congregation saying well don't let that liquor boys go to your head It was on a winter's day, they were making a run They were roaring towards old Windy Gap And as they passed by Maggotty Creek There was a car that was stopped on the pass And before they could jump, they were laying there slumped In that bloody snow-covered street Old Deputy Rex had drew a six-gun Knocked them off their feet 
And the men were dying and the church was lying The children were crying cause their daddies were dead And the people were praying and the congregation saying Well don't let that liquor go to your head If you ever travel down old 220, the folks say things have changed. There's houses and stores and traffic galore, and nothing quite seems the same. If you hit it just right on a cold winter's night, your nerves might start to settle. Cause that mash is churning, that old wood fire's burning. They put used to that old copper kettle. Colby Helms will be performing with the Werner Helms edition at the Appalachian Vibes Music Festival over Labor Day weekend. Front Mill Music Company presents the Appalachian Vibes Music Festival over Labor Day weekend at Mountain Valley Brewing in Axton, Virginia. Three days of local and regional bands presenting Rebecca Todd in the Odyssey featuring Kyle Travers and Disco Risque Friday night on September 3rd. Saturday night, September 4th, the headliners are JoJo Stockton and Dara James Blues Band, followed by the Snozberries from Asheville. On-site camping, fire dancers, vendors, and workshops. Very limited tickets. For more information, visit AppalachianVibes.net or Eventbrite.com slash AppalachianVibesMusicFestival. Appalachian Vibes is brought to you by Fretmill Music Company, a Martin, Taylor, Breedlove, and Husson Dalton showroom in Southwest Virginia, open seven days a week with credit and layaway options, located in the heart of downtown Roanoke. Visit fretmill.com for more information. You're listening to Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. My next guest is Charlottesville, Virginia's funky rock and roll dance party band, Disco Risque. They're also headlining Friday night at the Appalachian Vibes Music Festival. I'm Robert Prescott. I play drums, and um, me and uh, me and Charlie here play. Uh, we started this band. Yep. My name's Charles Murchie. I play guitar. I've been happily married for a long, for almost nine, or I guess I've been happily married for almost three years. And I've been in a really good relationship with my wife for almost nine years. So she's lovely. She's lovely. And I'm still, I'm still like, there's songs we write about that, but I also have a lot of fun writing the songs about when I was jaded and, (laughs) you know, a little upset at people. So this is kind of like the scene is channeling my 25 year old self. One is like Brendan Bayless. No matter how long he's in a band and he's married, it's going to sound like he's always going through a breakup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just fun to write about because it's a part of like what you should have said and how funny would this have been if this was the actually the way it went down kind of thing. But it's all in good fun. So was any of it based on like an actual experience? Definitely. Yeah. They all come from like specific people and specific experiences and they know who they are when they hear it. But, uh, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's also not going to like, it's not too, too specific to, to not for everyone to make it about somebody there. You're like, Brenda, this song is for you. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But, but this song is now it's more of, um, everybody's Brenda. Yeah. Everybody's got a Brenda (laughs) that they want to hear this tune that they were like, really, really in love with really, um, 
hoping that would work out and it just never did. And, oh, Brando. you know, so you, <laughs> yeah, looking back, you're able to write silly rap tunes about it. She never looked better. I wish I didn't meet you around Christmas in that sweater. You never forget her short skirt, high heels, making me do better. Hope I get a chance to let her take every chance, do it all together, and make it all forever from the first day all the way to lips and leather. Don't let me get ahead of my game. First things first, gotta get on my name. Show her everything that we want the same. Cause letting it slide would be a damn shame. You know that girl was mean. You know I keep it nice when I intervene. You know I'm coming twice, never keeping it clean while you acting like you own the scene. Appalachian Vibes is supported by Spot On. Spot On's mission is to provide software and payment solutions supported by local and personal service 24-7. Spot On offers fully integrated restaurant management systems and end-to-end solutions. Learn more at spoton.com. The Quality in Dutch Inn is located off Highway 220 in Collinsville, Virginia, Less than eight miles from the Martinsville Speedway and near Ferrystone State Park, the Blue Ridge Parkway, and Smith River. Under new ownership and management, and it's being fully renovated from the ground up. The Quality Inn Dutch Inn is a choicehotels.com rated hotel. To learn more, go to choicehotels.com. You're listening to Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm Amanda Bakke. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Disco Risque, Charlottesville, Virginia's electric dance party band. Tell me about where you're from. It always feels great to come home and play yeah. in Roanoke. My mom still lives, you know, she lives in Boone's Mill right now. 
Yeah, okay. so my mom just moved to Lynchburg from Roanoke. She's been there for 20 yep. years. I'm in Southeast. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? There's kind of a uh, a stereotype of music, I think. 100%. But I'm guessing you guys were probably integral into creating a different music scene around here because your sound yeah. is really unique. Uh, integral would be flattering. I would love that. <laughs> but um, but we're definitely like, I'm very much a, a hip hop kid through and through. Like if I'm listening to music for myself, it's hip hop or electronic dance music, stuff like that. Especially growing up in Roanoke, a lot of mandolins and banjos. And I got friends who were great at them. And I, and yeah. I, you know, I love that music, but it was never our thing. Yeah. You know, it was never like, well, at least what we wanted to do as as a business, yeah, as, as professional, yeah, as a professional. Now I've spent a lot of time playing a whole lot of grass and time and stuff like that, and those were really good lessons on the guitar and stuff. But when it came time for us to start our new project that we were going to move forward with, we wanted to make something that was big, big arena feel.
we all started doing this, some form of this when we were 10 years old. So, uh, you know, I used to perform when I was young in, in Roanoke. And when I moved here for work, I really had to take this job seriously. And I definitely had to drop my music. And mm. I was working about 80 hours a week. And after about five years of that, I was, you know, kind of like, what? Well, I'm kind of in my mid twenties, not wondering what's going on. And, you know, you saw it happen. I just, I jumped on Motour. And after a couple of years of that, I was like, I missed this. Yeah. And then I, uh, I had to figure it out. So I went from, you know, working 80 to 60 hours a week and then got back into doing my own catering and only taking bigger jobs. And with that freeing up my own time and really trying to wean myself out of the kitchen into music, but it was, it was a process and it was definitely something that took a lot of finesse. So. You guys sound like family at this point. We are very much. Yeah. We really like we I said, we spend a, holidays together. He's the best man at my wedding. We've lived together for years. Yep. Yep. But, we fight like sisters for yeah, sure. Like sisters. <laughs> but, but between us girls, we're, it's all. Up, so you sure. mean like if he wears your shirt and takes a picture of it and posts it on Facebook, like you'll hear from. If I wear his shirt, I'm doing a Chris Farley fat guy in a little cup. <laughs> and if I wear his, I'm like, I'm like the little girl from Poltergeist in someone's pajamas. <laughs> Just running around. Yeah. <laughs> this song, Pre-Fluff Party Five, was actually written for my girlfriend before she was my girlfriend. Um, and it, it sounds like I was trying to serenade her, but it was she's been a really close friend of mine for a long time. He was trying to serenade her. <laughs> uh. <laughs> she's been a really close friend of mine for a long time and you know, in a really hip character in my life. So, you know, people who are colorful characters in my life get colorful songs. Yeah. And this song was uh, was definitely that. It, it was even, I think, originally longer. And yeah. we've, all we've done with this song is trying to kind of cut it down to a point of where it, it really needs to be. And uh, I'm really proud of the song. As far as the title, um, <laughs> uh, she's a party girl. Yep. So it's you know, so uh, pre-fluff is... Uh, Pre-party girl. Yeah, pre-fluff is... Of something that a lot of times people do to microwave drugs that what they'll do is they'll put water in a cup with drugs <laughs> and put it in the microwave to soften them. Oh, okay. And, Smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, if we're going to, let's break it wide up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> go out, yeah, let's whatever. <laughs> we, we try to make fun of everything. Yeah. This included, yeah. Including the time that we saw our friends putting drugs in water in a cup in the microwave. And I was like, what is this pre-fluff? I was like, all right, <laughs> write it down. So uh, it, yeah. it left a mark. Yeah. Um, not that she was doing that, but she, yeah. uh, she, she's, you know, when you're on that scene though, when you're following, <laughs> following bands on tour, you run into some characters that are doing some weird stuff. Yeah. And her, her friends are uh, guilty. Yeah. So, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in the idea that we really have spent a lot of time, you know, uh, with the band, we've also spent a whole lot of time going to shows and, uh, some of the biggest and best times of my life and the greatest people I've ever met have been on the road. And so we're, you know, big advocates of, of going to see music and also why, you know, once again, we, we really like to go back on the road. You know, yeah. you, you really have some, some interesting times that are unfathomable and uncomparable to, to anything else you can experience.
make another drink Dr. Pepper Park at the Bridges is a multi-use outdoor venue on the edges of the Roanoke River at the base of Mill Mountain. Experience live music and festivals in downtown Roanoke. The 2021 season is full of national, regional, and local artists. For more information on the upcoming schedule, visit drpepperpark.com. Here's what's coming up at Dr. Pepper Park. The 12th annual Roanoke Wing Fest on August 28th. September 9th, the spotlight returns to Blackberry Smoke. Learn more at drpepperpark.com. Production support comes from Lawrence C. Musgrove Associates Incorporated, providing administrative services for pension, health, annuity, and welfare plans since 1977. Visit musgroveassoc.com for more information. You are listening to Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. My next guest is an Appalachian writer living in Knoxville, Tennessee. A. Jordan grew up in East Tennessee and has a B.A. in English from Mary Baldwin University. They write fiction and poetry and have some experience with spoken word and theater, mainly at various no-shame theaters throughout Virginia. A.J. is a licensed master social worker in Knoxville, Tennessee. When they are not writing on their porch, they can be found wandering in the wilderness. This story is called Red Bud. come down to Knoxville for dinner, Daddy? Shannon's voice was high and hesitating. That whiny quality she had inherited from her mother. Wayne let the words hang in the air as he took the last draw off his sixth beer of the day. He didn't like to let her down. It wasn't her fault he was a sorry bastard. Maybe so, baby, he replied, knowing that he wouldn't be getting in his car that afternoon. Well, her words rushed forward over themselves. We're going to eat at four, and I'll set out some snacks around two. You can come over any time you want. We'll keep some food warm if you want to come on over later, too. You know, everybody's always wanting to keep on gnawing anyway. We'll set up a while watching movies. John's folks are over here, and his brother, his brother's kids, they had a heck of a time out there hunting eggs this morning. He was at a loss on what to say. Yeah. It'd mean the world to see you, Daddy. For the kids, too. I want them to know their papa. Her voice stopped in her throat, as if she had swallowed the words. Well, I guess I ought to get back in there to them. I hope you will come by. I love you. The weight of her expectation pressed on him, and he struggled a little to come out from under it. Love you too, baby, he managed, then hung up the phone. He felt relief for the conversation to be over followed by a blank wave of regret. He placed the empty beer can on the side table and rocked his body up into standing to retrieve another one from the kitchen. Wayne knew that Shannon would be the only one of his kids to call. She was a good one, the youngest of his seven, spread out over four women. Her mama had left him when the girl was eight or so, and he hadn't fooled around with any gals since then. Not really. There weren't any that would have what was left of him. 
He took up the cane balanced against the worn brown hide of the recliner and leaned onto its handle as he maneuvered through the dark room. He reckoned he had about everything he needed without any woman. Of course, it'd be nice to have somebody to look after him a bit, tidy up the place, make sure he was taking his pills. After that fall he took last year, they sent out a pretty little nurse from the home health who had scolded him good. He smiled, thinking about the last time she'd been by, three or four months back. Wayne had tried to argue with her. Now, Linda, you can keep on coming. There ain't no reason not to. Wayne, she'd said, standing a little bit straighter and looking him right in the eye. There ain't no reason for me to keep on coming either. It's Medicare fraud that I've been out here the last two weeks. Call up one of your kids and get yourself in order. Working women were like that, always threatening something or another. Ah, he'd waved. I don't need any help. Though he had told her about his scattered clan, he had neglected to mention that the only one speaking to him was Shannon. He wouldn't know how to reach any of the rest of them, not anymore. Linda had snorted and walked out the door. If he'd been a bit younger, he might have followed her. Maybe he'd get a dog. He'd mentioned this to Linda at some point, and she told him it would be a fall risk. An animal would just be hanging around, waiting to trip him up. What does a man do with his life when he can't even get a damn dog to keep him company? He peered into the fridge, its squalid light bouncing back onto him, revealing a stained, near-empty rectangle stocked with a few 24 packs of natural ice, a jar of pickles, mayonnaise, some bologna, and a stack of craft Singles. He reached into the ragged corner of one of the boxes and drew out another can, grunting slightly as he steadied himself to stand upright. Wayne held the cool cylinder in one hand and stepped backward, batting at the fridge door with the rubber-tipped cane he held in the other. Glancing out the window over the sink, he noticed sunlight pushing through the shades and thought it might be warm enough to head outside to the porch. Sawani went, back through the dark little house, its front room with the cluttered rows of Outdoor Life magazines, and out the door, which he left open. He dropped down onto the glider, swinging wildly for a few beats, and smiled to himself. Whatever else there was in this world, there was always cold beer and silence. He placed the cane against the porch railing and looked out into the yard. Wayne had lived in the little house on the hill ever since his own mother had gone to Jesus, some fifteen years ago. The flowers that popped up around the fence line were hers, untended in years, a scraggly mess of daffodils, tiger lilies, irises, and creeping flocks, slowly being choked out by clover, daisies, and dandelion. The flocks was the only blooming reminder of the old bird, bright pink. The daffodils had already died back, and the others were just green shoots. He was accustomed to caring for the lawn and cutting back the vines creeping up out of the woods, but he hadn't been able to last year. The neighbor man, Sammy, had come over and offered to help with it. He said, I'm out on my mower anyways. It's no trouble for me to pop on over and get around the house at least. Sammy hadn't come over this year. Not to Wayne's. And Wayne considered that maybe he was over and done with that charity act. Maybe Sammy felt he had met his Christian duty, or his wife had hassled him into staying on home. He'd know soon, once that grass kept rising and Sammy had to look at it what it all meant to the old boy. 
The yard was already a good six inches high, dotted with darker tufts of spring onions and patches of purpley haze, henbits and violets. The forest was greening up too, the scrub bushes already plump with leaves, hints of color outlining dark branches higher up in the sky. It was the same thing every year, the same earth, the same trees, the same cycle. And here he was, getting older. Spring didn't feel like a revelation to him. It didn't feel like something new. It was just another reminder of the passing of time, the promise of work, and the question of how to accomplish that work. Wayne hadn't met Shannon's kids. He didn't even know how old they were. Didn't think they were in school yet. She'd had that oldest one when she was in high school herself and hadn't quit calling him after it was born, giving him updates on every holiday and on his birthday. When she brought it home from the hospital, he had dropped off a stuffed bear on her porch, a soft yellow thing from the Walmart. He had snuck up on that porch like a thief in the night and leaned the bear against the door. For a while, he thought the baby's daddy would run out on Shannon, run out like Wayne had done all his life. But the boy had married her, and they seemed to be happy. Or at least it sounded that way from what she said on the phone, which was just as good because he didn't have anything to offer her if that one did run out. Wayne drank his beer, and then another one. Down the hill, he could smell Sammy's grill going, and he watched into the yard as if it were a fishbowl and he was a hungry cat. His eyes followed Sammy's woman in a bright new dress that whipped around her body in the spring wind. She had wrapped a sweater around her upper half and stood on her freckled legs with her arms crossed tight, holding in the warmth of her body. Sammy's woman had her nut-brown hair tied back, but it still blew around some, too. The skirt was thin and silky, revealing the curves of her belly and thighs. Wayne considered that he ought to talk to her sometime. Get her name. Her kids sat at the table, and from time to time, they seemed to get at each other, like kids were wont to do. Wayne chuckled and shook his head. He wondered what old Sammy had cooking. Smelled like steak. Maybe it was deer. Wayne's mouth watered, and he took a long pull of beer, which was starting to get warm in his grip. He began to think that maybe he ought to just go on down there and try to talk to that old boy, smile at his pretty wife, see if they might help him with the mowing. He could offer a little something. It's not like he needed charity. And maybe they'd have an extra plate for him. Wayne dropped the now empty can he was holding onto the floor of the porch and reached for his cane. He planted the stick firmly on the ground in front of him and went to rocking, trying to gain momentum to stand from the glider. After about half a dozen tries, he went lurching forward with enough get-up-and-go to bring himself to his feet. He reached for the rail with his free hand as his vision went black and the world spun. Sometimes that happened when he stood too fast. Once he saw the green yard again, he let go of the rail and approached the three stairs that led down to the sidewalk. He placed the tip of the cane on the top one, and in a moment, he was airborne. The confusion was a curious bright flash, interrupted by crushing pain in his shoulder and hip as he tumbled down the steps and onto the ground. He heard an ugly, Ugh! as the air rushed out of his lungs, and for a moment, he thought he might have died. The cane had fallen away, and he realized he could not find his arms to plant his hands. When it occurred to him that he was still breathing, 
He couldn't seem to hold enough air to make any more sound. He could still smell the cooking meat down at Sammy's, and he tried to look down that way to see if they were there, to see if he could find some way to motion to them. Instead, his eyes landed on a redbud tree. Pink as anything. Pink as his insides. Pink as spring. Pink as his shame. Dancing in the wind. He watched the limbs blow. 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 Waving their salute. Announcing themselves fresh as all hell. Taunting him as he lay there. Spending down his time. After a while, he heard Sammy's woman start to shout. And then the kids, too. As the shouts came closer, he closed his eyes. My name is AJ. I am really interested in um, writing about Appalachia. And um, in particular, I'm interested in writing about being queer in Appalachia which isn't so much in the story that I've shared with you, um, but is something I'm very interested in and interested in exploring. What's your experience in um, being queer in Appalachia? (laughs) I came out really young. I was a teenager. It was the late 90s. (laughs) (laughs) lived in a rural area. And like a lot of people uh, in that time period, I think I internalized the notion that that meant I didn't belong here. And I left um, eventually. And then I came back because I realized I, I do belong here. And I'm just as much a part of all of it as it is of me, you know, like these mountains are my home. And, uh, doesn't doesn't matter what anybody else might say or think about that. That's just the truth. Has your experience in Appalachia changed since time has passed? I don't know. You know, that's a really hard question because I think one thing that was instrumental for me as a young person here was building a, a family of my own, a community of my own with queer friends and I'm still in contact with those people and they mean the world to me, you know? Uh, and that, that always existed for me. That kind of home was always here, you know, even back then. And, and now like, okay, so the larger, the larger culture, I don't know how much it's changed in some places. I think that maybe it's changed a lot. Like we're more capable of talking about it. Um, in, less destructive ways in a larger audience. Uh, But there are also things that haven't changed. And I talk about that. Some of my friends, people that I grew up with and, you know, when we have concern for youth now that we think might be queer or might be questioning or, or whatever, um, you know, we we sort of wonder like, is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. Like there's more internet, you know, there's more, (laughs) there's more visibility. Uh, there's more conversation and um, there's still also a lot of the same things that we faced. I grew up in a small town that had about 5,000 people in it. It's a lot, a lot bigger today. Um, not a farm, but you know, like I had a sinkhole in my backyard where I spent most of my time. Uh, <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time outside in the woods. That was really where I um, felt comfortable and, and safe and happy. Where did you study writing? Um, well, so I, 
I studied literature, but not writing at Mary Baldwin, um, which was a college when I went there. And after I graduated, I moved away for a while. Um, and I took, a, I took a number of writing classes at the Loft Literary Center in um, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Since I've moved back into the South, I joined like the local writers guild and I've been in, involved with that in a small like uh, advanced fiction writers group for a while. And so I didn't really study writing, I don't guess. <laughs> I think you exactly studied writing. That's what, that, all, that's what all of those things are. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Literature. Like I studied music, but now I write music. You know, I, I, I still studied it that whole time. You mentioned in your bio, you're a social worker. What is it like being a social worker in Appalachia? I, I guess, you know, being a social worker, I almost never meet someone on, on you know, the best day of their life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think some one thing about, about social work is that um, you do get to, to walk with people through some extraordinary times of, of change. And I guess that's impactful. I know that's impactful for me. Yeah. Even though I don't feel like it, it impacts my writing that much, I'm sure it does. <laughs> well, the story is kind of, is a man who's had seven children over four women, and he doesn't have much of a relationship with any of them. Mm-hmm. The best one calls him and badgers him from time to time to be involved in his life and in her life and her kids' lives, and he refuses to in it. And at the end, I mean, we don't know if he lives or dies. So I feel mm-hmm. like that is 100% qualifications for a, a social worker. <laughs> yeah, Wayne might benefit from a social worker. Um. <laughs> Nate, Wayne could really use a social worker. That's for sure. You know, like when I wrote this story, I, <laughs> I was thinking about masculinity and vulnerability. Um, and that's what I was thinking about a lot when I wrote this. And I, I, I'm a non-binary person, and um, most of the time I identify as masculine of center. And so I, I think about like what what does masculinity mean to me? And and you know what? Like of course, like being a social worker, and I work with men, and you know they don't because um, I work with everybody. That's why I work with men. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think there's issues with vulnerability and masculinity that are there to be explored. You can learn more about AJ at AppalachianVibes.net. You can also hear and read the full story there. If you know an Appalachian writer, send them our way. AppalachianVibes at gmail.com. This piece of music is Cool Willie, performed by Colin Cutler. This is Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. You can learn more about the artists featured on today's show at AppalachianVibes.net. You can also nominate an artist there. Appalachian Vibes is powered by listener nominations. <laughs>